Hey everyone, this is Elijah Johnson from financeandliberty.com and back with us today is James Corbett from the Corbett Report. James, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thank you for having me back on, Elijah. Always a pleasure to talk to you. All right, so the first topic I wanted to discuss was the gas deal that China and Russia are currently considering. A couple weeks ago, you discussed this in an article and you said that if this deal is signed, it will be, quote, a significant event, not only economically, but geopolitically. So first, to start out, how do you see this impacting the global economy? Well, let's let's just talk about this proposed deal a little bit first so that everyone knows what we're talking about. We're talking about the, the Power of Siberia pipeline, which is proposed to go for across eastern Russia and into China. And it's been on the, the uh, on the drawing board in one form or another since 1997. So we're looking at something that's been bandied about for almost 20 years now. But there is a real momentum behind it at the moment. And in a uh, in a bilateral meeting that took place last month, both the deputy prime minister of Russia and the vice premier of China announced that they were on the verge of a deal that may be signed as early as later this month on Putin's state visit to Beijing between Gazprom and CNPC for the construction of this pipeline. Apparently, the only last thing that they're they're arguing about is base price, which, of course, is always the sticking point. But it is interesting and significant that this is happening now. And this is a pipeline that would uh, be envisioned to be providing as much as 38 billion cubic meters of gas per year to China by 2018. So in just four years time, which uh, to put that in perspective, China is currently importing 186 billion cubic meters per year. So a significant chunk of uh, China's uh, imports of natural gas would be coming through this pipeline. And it is interesting to look at this deal coming together right now and why there seems to be some impetus behind this getting signed at this particular point. Because as I say, this is something that's been talked about for nearly 20 years, and it seems to be a marriage made in heaven. You have the world's largest gas, uh, natural gas exporter on the border of the world's largest natural gas importer. You would think they would already have a pipeline uh, between the two of them. It would make all kinds of economic sense from both sides. But, of course, there is the there's the old Sino-Soviet split that happened way back in the 19... Well, going back to the founding of, of the Chinese communists and the uh, the split between Marxist-Leninism and, and Maoism, um, the ideological differences. But, of course, that came to a head in the 1960s. And ever since then, there have been tensions and, and not particularly happy feelings between China and Russia. And that's carried over into the current era, even after the fall of the Soviet Union, so that these two neighbors who do have a lot in common in our current geopolitical era still have been kept somewhat at arm's length from each other for a very long time. And that has spilled over into the economic arena in the fact that this pipeline has not yet been constructed. But it is it is looking um, almost certain to be signed in the coming months, perhaps as early as this month. And as I say, I think that this is obviously it's going to be a big economic benefit um, for both Russia and China, I would think. Um, if it does get signed, because, of course, Russia would be able to export more of its gas uh, to to the east rather than to the west, rather to than uh, to its troubled European flank. It could concentrate more on Asia as it is increasingly doing. In fact, Russia also recently just wrote off 10 billion dollars of North Korean debt as a way of uh, gaining concessions to run a pipeline down to South Korea. So Russia is very, very um, interested in looking to Asia right now for some of its uh, gas exports. And I think they're doing that as a type of geopolitical bulwark against what is happening in Eastern Europe right now. 
And the fact that there is right now, of course, with the sanctions and the threat of further economic uh, uh, reprisals against Russia for what is happening in Eastern Europe, I think that Russia sees the writing on the wall and understands that they are being sort of excised from the, the so-called international community, which, of course, always just means the U.S. and its NATO allies. And that is a significant economic step for Russia. And I think that they understand that they have to start branching out eastward. And I think it was no um, small coincidence that as the Crimean annexation was being signed in Moscow, uh, the director of Rosneft was in Asia talking about how Russia was uh, was basically going to start uh, its own pivot to Asia in a way to to uh, counteract the the Pentagon pivot to Asia, but not in a military sense, more in an uh, in an economic sense. So this makes all sorts of geopolitical sense for Russia, and I think China also is. Uh, is very much realizing, although it is, I think, famously reticent to get involved in geopolitical entanglements, I think it is definitely realizing that its interests lay much more in the construction of these types of bilateral deals with uh, some of the other the other uh, nations that are being excluded from the NATO IMF World Bank system um, uh, be, for their own interests. I think they see in the long run that they're probably not going to benefit from this this uh, NATO-led regime very much and that they have to find their, their alliances elsewhere. So I think that this is a, a very significant step. And I, I really see this as the potentially the what might we might look back on in in a future era as the beginning of a new era of really the the segmentization the the the, the bifurcation of the the global economy from uh, the, sort of the Western U.S.-led block and the resistance block, if you want to call it that, which would encompass, obviously, Russia, China, some of the, the former Soviet republics, and, uh, and places like uh, Iran and others that are being excluded from this world system as well, and that are increasingly banding together through deals like this gas deal to, uh, to re- and of course, which would almost certainly be um, uh, denominated in local currencies in, in yuan and ruble rather than in dollars. So we're seeing... The, really the, the beginning of a system that will bypass or at least potentially could bypass the the existing international uh, exchange system. And this is, a, a, again, an extremely important event that is not getting a lot of coverage or at least not as much as I think it should, given the, the, the potential for change that we see coming through deals like this one. Mentioning that if this gas deal is signed, that then China and Russia in this case would not be trading in dollars Do you see this having an adverse effect on the value of the U.S. dollar and possibly boosting China or Russia's currency? Well, yes, I think that uh, this is just one example of the bilateral deals that China has been signing in a furious pace for the last several years between a a number of its trading partners that are denominated in local currencies. And I call it the death of a thousand paper cuts. I think that the uh, the dollar is just gradually losing its uh, its prominence in international trade. And it it is a very gradual process. It still accounts for, I believe, over 80 percent of international settlements. So still the vast majority of settlements are in the U.S. dollars. But that is being eroded and the Chinese yuan is increasingly being used in international settlement and is uh, slowly um, working its way up those charts. So I think what we're seeing is is just the continuation of a process that's been going on for some time and maybe gaining steam through deals like this one, rather uh, high profile deals. But yes, I think that ultimately that's what what is happening Um I don't think there's really any way around it. The the dollar really is being or its status is being eroded. And um, 
it's happening at a slow enough uh, pace that I think people may not realize what's happening. But once they do, I, I think it will be a sort of steamroller effect. It, uh, the the momentum that's already built up through all of these bilateral deals that are, that are being signed by China uh, it is going to to start catching up at some point and and eventually really overtake. I think and and come come as a surprise to many Americans who aren't watching what's happening. And you mentioned in your article how you know the West is really engineering their own downfall in all of this. Do you want to expand a little bit on that? Well, you see, this is the fascinating part for me, because I think that the the Russian turn to China and to the to Asia generally for exporting more of its gas is absolutely 100 percent the logical conclusion of what's happening in Eastern Europe right now. And what's happening in Eastern Europe, of course, has to be seen in the context of the gradual NATO expansion into the former Soviet republics and the, the just the, that constant eastward expansion of NATO further and further and closer and closer towards Russia's border, which, of course, is kind of hemming um, Russia in geopolitically and is obviously a, a threat on, on the Russian border. That Obviously, I mean, the the only logical conclusion of this is that Russia will uh, start disengaging and disentangling itself from its European commitments and moving towards its allies in the Eurasian uh, region and and in Asia generally. And so I, I think that the, uh, the the people who are involved in putting these deals together and, and putting the, uh, the or for example, the anti-missile defense uh, shield and, and other such uh, really intimidating projects right there on uh, in in Russia's backyard in places like Poland are, are not stupid people. They, they do understand the ramifications of this. So the real question is, why are they uh, content to let this happen, especially as one of the logical uh, points of this, as, as we just pointed out, is that the dollar's status as the, the, the default world uh, settlement currency is being eroded through deals like the one that we're about to see taking place with, between Russia and China. And uh, I think this has to be seen in the greater context of an historical sweep. Uh, again, it sounds somewhat... It sounds contradictory or oxymoronic that uh, that the 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 companies and and corporations and and Western uh, business leaders and and political leaders would be creating the the enemy that they are seeking to fight. But this is something that's happened time and time again throughout history, and we really only have to look at twentieth century history to see to see that at work. Um, Perhaps the most famous example or the most obvious example would be the Soviet Union itself, which was absolutely supported and funded and fostered by foreign corporations and military and other types of economic uh, tr- uh, technology transfers that took place throughout the history of the Soviet Union and were a- amply documented by, for example, uh, Ho- uh, Hoover Institute researcher Anthony Sutton in his uh, works like Western Technology and Soviet Economic Development, where he talked about how Soviets, uh, the Soviet Union employed more than 350 foreign conces- concessions during the 1920s. And during the uh, the original Lenin's original five year plan for economic development, uh, you had in the Caucasus oil fields, you had the International Barnstall Corporation introducing American rotary drilling techniques and pumping technologies. You had uh, refineries built by foreign corporations, including, of course, Standard Oil's lease at Batum. You had uh, technical assistance concessions in coal, uh, anthracite, mining industries. You had AEG, General Electric, Metropolitan Vickers were major operators in machinery sectors. Uh, every major sector of the Soviet economy that you looked at, in its, uh, certainly in the 1920s and 30s, was dominated by these foreign concessions. Um, uh, you had Albert Kahn, Inc. of Detroit, and, and some of these other major corporations were were very much supporting what was happening in the Soviet Union, 
even as, of course, the Soviet Union was being built into the big bad boogeyman of the late 20th century. And that didn't stop, of course, after World War II and after the beginning of the Cold War. That, in fact, continued and was uh, continued to be documented by people like Sutton, who pointed out, for example, in the uh, in the Korean War, the 130,000 man North Korean army was trained, supported and equipped by the Soviet Union. Um, using, for example, uh, Soviet T-34 medium tanks, which had U.S. Christie suspensions, or you had uh, artillery tractors uh, with uh, direct uh, metric copies of Caterpillar tractors. You had trucks coming from the Henry Ford Gorky plant or the Zill plant. Uh, You had the North Korean Air Force using uh, uh, yak planes built in uh, plants with U.S. land land lease uh, equipment. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Rolls-Royce jet engines. I mean, you go down the line, again, it uh, the entire infrastructure for, for what was happening in these wars was built and designed and supplied by foreign corporations to the Soviet Union, even as they were the big, bad, scary boogeyman. And uh, that that uh, is exactly what happened, for example, with Nazi Germany, which, again, the, the Nazi war machine was very much built and supplied and fostered by uh, many of the exact same corporations, uh, including, of course, uh, the, the Ford Corporation and others who were there in Germany um, with their with their own plants. Uh, IBM, of course, had uh, had links to the, the, the Nazi regime. Uh, you had the fact that the the Nazi war machine could not have functioned um, just in terms of couldn't could not could could, could not have operated with with its uh, lack Germany's lack of petrochemicals, so they had to develop technology with the help, of course, of Standard Oil to uh, create uh, synthetic uh, crude that they could use to to keep their their war machine functioning. Um, you you go even f- closer to current day. Uh, you have, for example, Saddam Hussein in Iraq, who uh, declassified CIA documents now prove the U.S. fully knew through uh, satellite imagery that uh, that Iraq was uh, preparing and and carrying out chemical uh, attacks on on Iranian targets in, in 1988, and they continued to supply the Saddam Hussein regime with uh, military and other types of aid. And then, of course, years later, they turned that around and said, well, look, he gassed his own people and uh, and attempted to use that as propaganda against him, even as they supported him for it. Um, again, time and time and time again throughout history, we've seen um, the, uh, specifically the American empire and a lot of American corporations funding and training the enemies that they then seek to uh, raise more money to help destroy. And it looks like we have a similar situation taking place with what's happening in Russia now, not only as I say, um, Russia being backed into its geopolitical corner to assign the uh, things like the gas deal with China, but also, for example, recently it was revealed that you had German uh, defense contractor Rheinmetall, uh, which signed a $140 million contract back in 2011 to help build a combat simulation training center in southwest Russia that would train 30,000 Russian combat troops per year. And uh, that deal came under some degree of scrutiny at the time, but uh, was only recently uh, shut down by the German government. So again, we have a lot of these same types of stories popping up right now. And uh, and if you looked at the Chinese situation, it's very much uh, similar. In fact, back in the 1990s, you had uh, China going from the 30th largest target of U.S. R&D investments to the 11th um, on the back of a doubling of U.S. affiliates in the country, including an entire 
just a, a treasure trove of Fortune 500 Council on Foreign Relation-related uh, companies like DuPont, Ford, General Electric, General Motors, IBM, Intel, Lucent Technologies, Microsoft, all setting up major R&D facilities in China in the 1990s, which was the back and of the infrastructure which created the the Chinese dragon, the economic effect that we saw that we've seen, that is now threatening to put China as the the world's largest economy. So I, I think what we've seen here again is the deliberate building up of a of an enemy, and uh, again that seems to be a, a, an oxymoron or a contradiction until it's realized. I think that these types of major geopolitical events are generally uh, uh, funded and trained and equipped on both sides by the same financial interests. And generally speaking, one side will be uh, allowed more funds, more resources, and uh, more, more ability to, to combat that, uh, that, uh, that, that, that war, that, that interaction, in order to finally emerge victorious. But, uh, of course, the, uh, the, the financiers and the corporations get to make money out of both sides of this. And I think that's exactly what we see happening with this construction of this new 21st century Cold War with Russia and China and Iran and the other resistance bloc nations against the NATO-led nations. Those are some really interesting points. And I wanted to move our focus to Ukraine. I know that recently the International Monetary Fund actually bailed out Ukraine and they're promising Ukraine the equivalent of around 17 billion U.S. dollars. What is your take on this? Well, the uh, the bailout uh, mechanism that's been put in place is potentially $17 billion over the next couple of years, but that hinges on a series of... Uh, of uh, of conditions that that Ukraine has to live up to in order to to uh, basically get those pay payouts. So the first three point two billion dollar payment came straight away, um, and was contingent on such things as uh, lifting uh, uh, gas subsidies that the the po- population enjoyed or had been enjoying, which meant that on May first, uh, basically overnight, gas prices for many Ukrainians jumped as much as fifty percent. So uh, it comes with it a lot of uh, austerity type strings attached to it, which is interesting because the IMF has changed its tune in recent months and has actually uh, advised such countries as Australia not to implement austerity measures because they, in fact, increase income inequality and, in fact, are detrimental to the economy, which is, of course, the exact opposite of what they've been saying for many years and what they've been doing to places like Greece. But uh, one would think, oh, maybe they've learned their lesson from what happened in Greece and now they're they're not preaching austerity. Well, apparently they still are to places like Ukraine. And interestingly, uh, the IMF bailout is now coming apparently with geopolitical strings attached to it, in, uh, including the warning that if Ukraine loses the control of Easter, the, its eastern region, then the, uh, the, the, the bailout payments will stop. So now the IMF is attempting to dictate what happens politically within the borders of this country, not just economically, which is, again, a, a significant sign. It shouldn't really be surprising, I think, because the International Monetary fund has to be seen as a geopolitical tool that's that's used um, by by the U.S. and the other the other uh, member nations of the IMF to to basically wield uh, their their control and influence over the countries that that uh, become signatories that become uh, subject to IMF bailouts. 
But it's it's interesting and, and I think significant that the majority of this funding is coming from the IMF in the form of a bailout. It's not coming, from, for example, from the European Union. It's not coming from any sort of political formation with the uh, the idea that there would be some sort of investment in the country that could be recuperated through through profit or something like that. It's, it's coming as a bailout. And I think that's a, a significant because, of course, the IMF is just this faceless bureaucracy that no one um, no, in the general public really votes for or has any say. And so it can do what it wants in terms of uh, putting austerity measures and, and other other strings on these large sums of money. If it were a political process involving, for example, a, a country like Germany, I think it would be uh, quite obvious that the German people already very, very much sick of supporting the, the European Union's uh, uh, sickly economies would be exceptionally unhappy with having to support a, a country that's not even part of the European Union. So that's why I think the uh, in terms of the political process, this isn't happening um, through through uh, the European Union or, or organizations like that. It's coming through the IMF. So I think this is, again, significant because another part of the resistance block that we're talking about, the Russia-China-Iran axis, is that they are, um, through the, uh, the BRICS countries, the Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, they are attempting to set up their own development bank now. And they have been for a number of years now. There are still wrangling about how it will be capitalized and when it will be set up and some of the details. But at any rate, they are talking about capitalizing and the, the number of $10 billion has been floated around a development bank to act as an alternative to the World Bank. And presumably, although we don't have the details yet, it hasn't been um, actually developed, but we would presume it would function more on the model of the way that China interacts, for example, in Africa by uh, giving uh, structural investments and infrastructure uh, deals to to the governments that it works with in return for for nat- access to resources or, or uh, uh, concessions for Chinese corporations or what have you. One would assume that the development bank that the BRICS is developing is more on that idea of creating infrastructure projects that then could be used to perhaps recuperate the money that's been invested into them rather than the IMF model of uh, basically trying to dictate politically what happens in a country. If that is the case, it would be exceptionally significant and one could very much imagine that a Ukrainian population who is sick of the debt burden of the IMF and the way that it's trying to di- dictate what's happening in its con- in its borders would be much more uh, enthusiastic about going with such an alternative development bank rather than the IMF. So we'll have to see how this plays out, but there are some significant opportunities here, I think, for the creation of some type of alternative structure to what we've seen dominating the uh, the international geopolitical scene for the past 50 years. So as the US dollar falls and loses its status as the world reserve currency, what do you see replacing it? I mean, what do you see being the world next world reserve currency? Do you see possibly like the yuan being it? I know some people have even speculated like gold or Bitcoin being the world reserve currency. Or you were mentioning, you know, the creation of a new banking system. Would that possibly issue a currency that could become, you know, a standard around the world? I don't think that's likely. I think even the capitalization of this uh, development bank is is very much up in the air and whether all of the members can even put in the $2 billion or whether China would have to uh, foot the, most of the bill is still, again, up in the air. So I, I don't envision that becoming, at at least not in the near term, uh, that, that type of uh, currency issuing organization or anything of that sort. I think the most likely, not necessarily the one that, that would benefit the most people or that most people would want to see or the ideal, but I think the most 
most likely thing we will see in the coming decades, all things remaining equal and all of the trends remaining at what they are right now, I think we could extend it out to see the, the US dollar being eroded to the point at which a basket of currencies would be used rather than simply the US dollar. Now, the the, the type of mechanism that w- that is already in place for that would be something like the IMF's special drawing rights, which is a type of currency, I suppose you could say, that is held by uh, central banks uh, in their foreign reserve baskets that can be used to draw on uh, uh, on dollars and yen and euros and a couple of other currencies that I'm not going to remember off the top of my head. But but basically, it's a basket of, of I think, five currencies that uh, that the, uh, SD, uh, uh, the SDRs are weighed on. And I think that would be the, the model for the type of mechanism that we're moving toward. It would be something like that. I don't think that the Chinese yuan would work, certainly not at this point, because it's not even a convertible currency at this point. Um, so it's, it's not even possible that that would become a, uh, a standard for international trade at this point. But uh, the, the yuan plus the euro plus a couple of other currencies, I, I could imagine uh, that becoming the the alternative to the U.S. dollar um, quite easily. I think that the important thing to keep in mind when we're talking about an international reserve currency is that it not only needs to be widely used and widely accepted and widely understood and widely adopted like the U.S. dollar currently is, but it also has to have the markets underlying it to to create the fluidity that that you and liquidity that you would need to facilitate international trade. Right now, the U.S. obviously does have those types of very, very large markets that are reasonably enough transparent and people understand them and people can access them, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think there's any other single nation in the world that has really an equivalent to that at this point that would be able to support that. So I think the only um, alternative that could exist the way things are right now, at any rate, is a, a basket currency. And I think that's that's what uh, not only what is being proposed, um, but, but what is specifically being advocated by countries like China. And after the Lehman Brothers collapse and what happened there, you saw China stepping up and and being a lot more vocal about the fact that we do need to move to some sort of basket type currency. And of course, that's when you saw China really ramping up its purchases of gold, um, which it has been buying at a furious pace for the last few years and has recently updated their gold holdings to, I believe, a double um, of what they were just a couple of years ago. Because again, I think that they are capitalizing and getting ready for the switchover. Um, again, I think that the basket currency approach is the most likely, but that basket of currencies, of course, themselves would be backed up, one would imagine, by the gold holdings of the individual countries involved in that basket. So um, I don't think it will ever be, again, a direct gold standard. I, I don't uh, see the political will for that. I don't see uh, just any way for us to get to that system. But I think that indirectly, of course, uh, uh, government's holdings of gold will play a factor in that. And that's why not only China, but again, Russia, and in fact, all the central banks of the world are buying uh, so much gold recently. And in recent years have been buying as much gold as they have at any time in the past, I believe, 35 years. So we are seeing some furious gold buying by central banks. And I think that's part of this realization that the dollars is, is being eroded and will be replaced eventually. And mentioning about all this gold buying, I asked some viewers to submit some questions. And Nesto from New Mexico asks about what macro geopolitical outliers do you sense would be the catalyst for the global currency reset? And he mentions like possibly when China can't buy its gold from the global market. 
Yes. Um, well, you you raised one very important point right there. I mean, for example, if we had some sort of COMEX default, if there was ev- ever an inability to uh, provide the, the physical gold, I think that would be one of those uh, trigger catalysts. Because, of course, all of the data shows uh, that underlying what's happening right now, un- uh, underneath the, the, the mere spot price for gold, there is still furious buying happening on uh, of physical gold um, uh, throughout the world. But, of course, a lot of it in China and in and India, and I think that that once the uh, that uh, discrepancy between the spot price and what's happening in the in the manipulated paper markets and the actual physical markets becomes to, uh, apparent, becomes uh, to the point where they can't sweep that under the rug. That would certainly be a, an, an, uh, a breaking point that we would see uh, some significant movements in terms of the fiat uh, uh, monetary regime that exists right now. Um, there are again it's prognostication so there are any number of events that you could imagine that could happen that could change things overnight i mean it could be something very tangential even we could even imagine a scenario for example if if north korea collapsed um overnight what would what would be the geopolitical and macroeconomic uh ramifications of that you would have uh, a position of millions of refugees uh suddenly f- trying to flood across the border into china china would of course be very unhappy with that. You would have the destabilization of a of a nuclear regime. You would have uh, obviously America trying to um, to uh, unify the the Korean Peninsula under its own military umbrella, which again would further provoke things with China. Um, what would be the ramifications of that? Would that be a further detachment of China and America? And would that be a bifurcation of their economies? Would that um, create the the type of uh, rift that would then stop the, the or or at least significantly slow down Chinese American trade, and if so, how would that affect um, America, which obviously has uh, outsourced so much of its uh, trade to uh, so so much of its manufacturing capacity to China, and is now importing, of course, a lot of its goods from China. Um, uh, again, we could imagine all sorts of scenarios. So it's difficult, and in fact, it's impossible, really, to say what particular event is going to set off what chain reaction. But I think it's important to to realize that we are poised in so many different ways for a uh, a popping of the bubble. And I think we have a bubble both economically and geopolitically in terms of the the kind of illusion of safety that we're living under right now. That it really is just an illusion in so many different ways, including, of course, the fact that the popping of the the previous uh, economic bubble in 2007, 2008, with the popping of the housing bubble was really just uh, remedied, quote unquote, by the quantitative easing and the blowing up of the largest bond bubble in history, which is even admitted to, again, by the Bank of England itself and has just created a housing bubble 2.0 in the United States. Uh, There is currently a housing bubble, uh, a property price bubble happening in the UK. Um, Of course, there's the property bubble in China, which uh, Nomura interestingly recently came out to say was uh, is already popping. And because of China's uh, demographics and its aging, uh, uh, aging workforce is basically destined to fail. So we have a lot of different ways in which we're poised um, on a knife edge geopolitically, economically, militarily even, and uh, any number of events could set it off. So I, I liken this to 1914, where it was the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand that set off World War I, which I don't think anyone could possibly have predicted that that, that event specifically would start World War I. But 
having said that, I think everyone understood there was going to be a general European war in the near future. And the, all of the major European militaries had been preparing for, for that event and had been training for it and had been uh, dra- drafting up their plans for just such an eventuality for decades prior to it happening. So that when it happened, despite the fact that its actual um, impetus was something that no one foresaw, the the war itself was foreseen. And in a similar way, I think we can see the, the economic uh, collapse happening at some point in the future. I just don't think we can really accurately predict what is going to be that that uh, that that spark that's going to set off the powder keg. And a lot of people see that one other thing that is threatening the financial system or could possibly threaten the financial system is the huge derivative market. Ben from Ohio asks, how do you feel about the stability of a four quadrillion dollar derivative market. Now, I don't know if it's actually that large, but what is your perspective on the derivative market right now? Well, I think the important point to note about this is that no one knows exactly how large it is because of the way that it's been constructed, because of the leverage, because of the highly complex ways in which these derivatives are leveraged between not only the people who are privy to them, but then the people who are speculating on the on the derivatives themselves. You have this this type of vast casino economy that's been created over the past couple of decades, certainly. In, in which we have the notional value of these uh, deals that are calculated basically as estimates. And then, of course, there's there's the real value because there aren't quadrillions of dollars in the world economy. Um, it, it, there's there's not enough money to back up all of these deals if they were all to, to suddenly come crashing down. So the real question is, well, if it did all come crashing down, where would the chips lie and who would be holding them? And uh, I think we can certainly all play play our part in the speculation game on that regard. But I think certainly uh, the the derivatives market is not only uh, a, a, a sort of time bomb waiting to happen, but one that's been called out repeatedly as such, even by people like Warren Buffett and others. Uh, uh, Buffett recently in his uh, Berkshire Hathaway annual general meeting uh, was actually un- uncharacteristically talking about the type of financial discontinuity that could happen in the unwinding of the derivatives market if that happened suddenly. And uh, I think, uh, you know, it's it's pretty significant when even the most conservative, most uh, sort of insider uh, type players in the system are warning about the system. Uh, we we had perhaps a similar uh, case back in 2005 when uh, Raghuram Rajaram, um, uh, the, the Indian, uh, he's currently the, the, the Reserve Bank of India's uh, 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 chief. But back in that time, he was uh, an IMF World Bank economist, and he was warning about exactly what was happening in uh, the the uh, the the, um, the housing bubble that was happening in the United States at that time. And he was warning about it in great detail from the perspective of someone who'd seen it from the inside. And I think, uh, again, exactly in a similar manner, we have the uh, the, the people who are on, on the inside of the system looking at what's happening in the derivatives market and saying that the unfolding of this is just going to be almost incalculable. And I think we would do well to take that warning seriously. And uh, I, I uh, again, what the question is for the average person, what can they actually do about that? And I think that there's really, uh, 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 in terms of what you can actually do to affect the derivatives market, is probably not that much. But what we can be doing, of course, is trying to detach ourselves from the financial institutions that are playing with the world economy as if it's their little toy. And there are a lot of different ways to affect that. But I think we have to be taking our money out of these financial institutions as as just the first approximation of an answer 
answer to this. And uh, people who are holding their money in these types of banks have to be worried not only, I think, for the general state of the world economy, although I think that's important, but even just for their own savings. Because as we saw with what happened in Cyprus, once the, uh, the these financial institutions start failing, the uh, the governments will not hesitate to reach into the pockets of the people to try to bail out the banks. And we've already heard from Attorney General uh, Holder back uh, in 2012, I believe it was, when he said that there are certain financial institutions that are simply too big to jail. And uh, those were comments that he came to regret and tried to retract later on. But uh, the point is there, and it's one that I think we all understand. There are certain financial institutions that have so much invested in the world economy that literally if they fail, the world economy will fall. And I think that uh, therefore they will be able to continue acting with impunity. The only recourse that the average person has is to stop putting their money in these financial institutions, to stop banking with them, to stop interacting with them to the extent that that's possible. And it isn't very possible in our current economy, the way it's been structured, which is why we have to start building up the uh, the credit unions and the other alternative financial infrastructure to facilitate that uh, that detachment from this system of uh, ridiculous leveraging that goes on in in the derivative of the market. And getting into that, you know how people should detach themselves, you know financially. Um, I'm also the same viewer is wondering about: Do you believe that the U.S. MyRA program, retirement program? Um, along with the European plans to privatize private pensions or 401ks as quote-unquote bail-ins are a last resort to keep the current financial system from failing. I can't speak to those programs specifically because I haven't looked into them at all, but I can say that I think it is almost inevitable that this is going to be one of the uh, one of the, the the steps that we see along the path toward the the creation of of the new economy the fall of the old economy the beginning of the new will be the point at which they start reaching directly and explicitly into um, pensions and retirements and savings funds of the population in order to bail out the system and to to keep you know economic order and I think that will be a pretty major warning sign and again we've seen it tested here and there and we've seen signs of what it will look like in Cyprus and other places uh, as these bail-ins start to take place. But I think we haven't seen really what it will look like in the full front, uh, in the full face of uh, daylight and in the full glare of public scrutiny. Um, and I think that we are going to see that at some point, just given the, the sort of financial calculations involved in this inevitable collapse. And uh, once we start to see that and once we start to see the way the population reacts to that, I think we'll have a much better sense of whether or not we as a, as a society, as a civilization will continue to function or whether we will simply um, basically sl- slide into a, a system that has been pre-planned to be completely controlled by the very few financial institutions at the very tar- top of this hierarchy. And it's important to note that in times of great crisis, it isn't necessarily that all all of these financial institutions are created equal. There are they, of course, jockey, jockey for position with each other, and some will come out on top, and some will uh, be completely annihilated. And just as one example of that, back in the crash uh, in the Panic of 1907, which uh, facilitated the the creation of the Federal Reserve, it was one of the the big panics that led to that the the creation of the Federal Reserve. Um, it, it was J.P. Morgan that started the rumors that started the uh, the downfall of the Knickerbocker Trust, which was an exceptionally powerful 
powerful uh, Wall Street institution at the time. And uh, I think people at that time probably wouldn't have seen that coming or wouldn't have envisioned that in the uh, in the panic, you would see a major institution like Knickerbocker and some of its associates fall. Unless, of course, you knew that it was J.P. Morgan, one of his major rivals, who was behind it all. So I think we can see that type of uh, that type of game being played out as well. And it's very difficult for the average person to be aware of which institution is likely to survive and which isn't, which is, I think, another reason why we have to stop supporting these 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 big interconnected uh, institutions that are located uh, usually halfway around the country or sometimes halfway around the world in our increasingly global age and start looking more for local um, uh, banking structures, uh, credit unions and the like that we can support, that we can actually see and interface with and actually to some extent um, determine how those funds actually get used and of course to stop it from, from being used for speculation in the global casino economy. And before we let you go, just to wrap up, I know we discussed a little bit about this in our last inter- interview, but did you want to you know, expand for our viewers some ideas of what they can do to protect themselves? Well, again, it, it uh, is dependent for every person and not only their, their risk tolerance and their current levels of, of debt and or assets and what they want to achieve, what stage of life they're in. But all, all I can really say is what I personally um, am doing. And, and that is, A, I'm not invested in any stocks of any sort. Um, I do not play the stock market. It's not to say that there's not money to be made there. It's just that I, I think it is absolutely overinflated uh, with the, the, the quantitative easing funny money that's been pumped into the economy over the past several years. And we are going to see a, a, a downturn from the record highs that are being hit in the uh, DJIA and the S&P right now. So I um, personally am not invested in any stocks. I do have uh, some long-term savings stored away in precious metals. I think that that's, uh, again, it's been proven for thousands of years to be a good place to store money for extended periods of time. It's not something I'm looking to make a quick buck or a turnaround or an uh, investment in. It's something that I'm seeing as an investment for the future, for for retirement. Um, And uh, uh, of course, the absolute number one thing people have to do is get out of debt. Do not go into debt, especially during times of uh, great destabilization like this. And especially as we are looking at global currency collapse and and, uh, things of that nature, you do not want to be in a position of debt during those times, because, of course, that provides great degree of political leverage um, by the financial institutions themselves and, of course, the uh, the governments that are in their back pocket. Um, and other than that, I, I certainly do think that uh, that that property um, in terms of real land and uh, and and tangible commodities are more likely to to be uh, valuable to you in this time of flux. Um, it's not, again, not to say that you can't play the stock market or you can't um, gamble in foreign currency exchanges or you can't um, have, have ETFs or things of that sort. They can and they probably will make money for certain people who are invested the right way. But, uh, but it's just not uh, the game that I want to play. And also those funds are often used uh, to, to basically uh, create the infrastructure that we don't want to see. So it's it's very easy, for example, to uh, to invest in in you know the Lockheed Martins or what have you of the world, but that's also investing in that military infrastructure that it, I think the vast majority of people don't want to see in place in the first place. So I think we have to be smart with our money, but we also have to um, we we also have to take a principled stand with our money and not invest in those things that we don't want to see, even if they are a way to make a quick buck. So that's my that's my own personal philosophy. Again, I don't uh, presume to advise people specifically on their own 
own uh, situations. I do uh, trust that people can figure um, things out for themselves and are smart enough to to make their own decisions in life. But uh, but absolutely, I I 100% cannot and do not advocate buying into the system as it currently exists. Not only because it's going to go down, but because I think it needs to go down, and I think it's already um, too too much overinflated and has too much control over our lives. So I think we need to invest in the alternative structures and the local structures that can help us to survive and hopefully thrive after the collapse of the current system. Well, James Corbett, once again, it was a pleasure having you on again today. Did you want to share with the viewers where they can find you? Uh, they can find me at CorbettReport.com. That's C-O-R-B-E-T-T Report.com. I do all sorts of interviews, videos, uh, weekly newsletter, all sorts of things. And you can find all of that there at the website CorbettReport.com. James Corbett, once again, thank you so much. Thank you for your time.